Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host today, Carl Nellis, and I'm talking with David Rosen and Aaron Santesso about their new book, The Watchman in Pieces. David is professor of English at Trinity College. Aaron is professor of literature at Georgia Tech. I'm so glad to have both of you on the show. Uh, David, Aaron, welcome. Well, thank you very much. So I'm excited. Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm your host today, Carl Nellis, and I'm talking with David Rosen and Aaron Santesso about their new book, The Watchman in Pieces. David is professor of English at Trinity College. Aaron is professor of literature at Georgia Tech. I'm so glad to have both of you on the show. Uh, David, Aaron, welcome. Well, thank you very much. So I'm excited to talk about this book in particular because you create such an interesting rethinking of modernity. And that's something particularly I'll ask you to go into in just a minute. I especially feel that it's, you know, (laughs) the weight of this book has been pressing on my mind as I've been rethinking uh, surveillance and ideas of personhood and the ways that literature can articulate with uh, the body politic over the past few months. So I'm, I'm grateful to have you on now to talk about your work. Can we start maybe by hearing a little bit about what brought you to this project before we jump in? Uh, maybe, David, could we start with you? Sure. What's your background? How did you get into writing this book? Well, uh, okay, so the background of the book is actually a little ignominious. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, uh, so Aaron and I were both teaching at Wesleyan in 2001-2002. I received my PhD at Yale the year before. Uh, Aaron was on a postdoc; um, he had gone to Queens. But we were both um, we were both at Wesleyan, and uh, the fact is there aren't a hell of a lot of things to do in Middletown, Connecticut, on a Thursday <laughs> or Friday evening. Let, let so, me interrupt at this point and say that I I begged David not to tell about this ignominious origin, but but go ahead, David. Yeah, it's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, so Aaron was desperate to see the movie that was playing in town, and I went along with it. And the movie was The Scorpion King, starring Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Mm. Uh, it was basically the only thing playing. Uh, you can learn things from that movie, uh, like <laughs> like gunpowder was invented by Chinese people in ancient Egypt 5,000 years ago. Anyway, when the movie was over, I think we both felt one quantum level stupider than before the movie. And so we went and got coffee afterwards in the one place that was open, trying to repair our broken intelligence. And we were talking about our careers. Um, we both had first books that were nearly done, and we were thinking about um, what, could ha- what we could do next. And I think we were both determined to work on something that would be not just of literary interest, but also you know, relevant to what was going on in the world. September 11th mm-hmm. happened a couple months earlier. Mm-hmm. And we sort of batted ideas back and forth. Um, we talked about terrorism, we talked about surveillance, and that seemed that seemed right. Already we had noticed that the conversation, the national conversation about surveillance had ticked up, and it didn't seem like a very sophisticated conversation. So although I'd been trained as a modernist and, and Aaron had been trained as a scholar of 18th century literature, and our first books were on those subjects, we kind of made a mental note, let's revisit this topic um, mm. when our first books are done. A couple of years later, uh, we kind of checked back with each other, and, and 
surveillance seemed even more relevant. It felt like this was going to be a topic that was going to be with us for a while. And so about 2005, I'd say, we really dove in. More or less getting it right, Aaron? Uh, yeah, the one major exception is that, uh, if I remember correctly, you were the one who begged me to see the Scorpion King. And so <laughs> I, I reject much of the premise of this, but... but uh, well, no- since Orwell plays a big, big part <laughs> in the argument, your revision of history is, I guess, thematic. That's right. Uh, no, I, I would also just add um, being at Wesleyan during 9-11 was was definitely something that we we were very um, struck by how quickly certain things changed uh, mm. after 9-11, both yeah. David going into New York City. David's from New York. Uh, our students who were uh, themselves, uh, you know, coming in from New York or were foreign students. I'm Canadian myself, and I was regularly going back from Connecticut over the border uh, in a Greyhound bus usually to see uh, uh, friends back in Canada. And just how quickly things changed and the idea of what surveillance was going to be in the relationship, you know, uh, between the individual and state security um, those were definitely things that that stuck in our heads. And so, yeah, as David said, a few years later when we went back to it, you know, I, I remember us saying, we'll see if this is a kind of a temporary shift. But we were pretty sure right away that this was going to become a major area for thought in terms of just American life. And I really appreciate the way you start the book uh, in the introduction when you kind of describe something similar to what you've just said, that you looked at uh, surveillance studies and the conversation that was happening there, and you saw the contributions of the social sciences, Uh of law. But what you set out in the introduction of the book is that uh, the two of you are making a contribution from the humanities. That's right. Can you talk about that a little bit more? why you saw a need for the humanities to make a contribution here and adding a voice that wasn't in the conversation about surveillance at that point? Sure. Um, well, actually, um, maybe I should just give an example. It's, it's the example with which yeah. we actually begin the book. So, right, if we had just thought that we could uh, – here's what we didn't want to write the book about. We didn't want to go back to the arguments that were already being made in sociology or legal studies or philosophy. <laughs> just mm-hmm. read some books and say, look, it's happening here too. That's not interesting to us. What we right. what we believed was that the humanities, a humanities perspective, had a specific contribution to make, and that our training as literary scholars allowed us to say things that weren't being said. So, the example with which we begin, and this was something that occurred to us quite early, uh, mm. is the example of 9/11, where everyone was talking about it, but we thought people were talking about it in the wrong way or or missing some basic points. Um, after the attack. It was striking in a way that ceased that has ceased to be striking because it's become so common since then. It was striking how almost every single thing the terrorists had done since a couple days before until the attacks somehow turned up. It it had been observed. It had been surveilled in some way, right? Mm -hmm. Like everyone, of course, videotaped the second attack because they were all training their camcorders or whatever on the first building that was already on fire. But, you know, and, and for like a couple of days, people said, well, there'll never be any video of that. And then sure enough, a, a video turned up of a fire department training exercise. Mm. And after about you know a week, it became possible to, if one was really macabre, to create a, like a two-hour movie in sequential order, just drawn from all these different bits of data, data valence and surveillance, sort of just stringing together what had happened. Now, mm. the existing philosophical and sociological conversation all went more or less like this. Aha, uh-huh, see? 
We live in a surveillance society. There's terrible control going on here. Look, there's not a moment that isn't under observation. Everything turns up. We're all being watched. Uh, the hidden watchers have, have, have us in their grasp. Uh, and I remember talking to Aaron at the time and saying, that, that's clearly not, we, we were agreeing, it's clearly not what's going on. And it seemed to us that the, that the thing that was missing in the conversation was when the attack first happened, no one knew what to make of it. And, and mm-hmm. the response of, in the media was, was chaotic. It was only possible to create a narrative in retrospect because at the time that the attacks were happening, the narrative was fully in the, in the control of the terrorists themselves. And no one else was capable of reading it. Our, our project went very far away from there. But this was kind of a foundational insight for us, that this thing called narrative, in which we're both specialists, was playing a role within, within how surveillance works, which just wasn't being recognized. And the way, you, the way you put it in the introduction of the book is that one of the assumptions that was a part of the discourse was um, this idea of interpretive competence. Yeah. Aaron, could you, could you speak to that a bit? I'll give another anecdote from, well, this is a number of years later, but I'll try to connect that idea of the role of the humanities and then the idea of interpretive competence. David and I were invited to a conference uh, up in New York hosted, co-hosted by the ACLU and PEN America. Mm. And it was uh, people flown in from all over the world, uh, but overwhelmingly uh, either legal scholars or Mm. more or less engineers. Uh, In other words, it, it, it was a classic example of the way that surveillance is generally uh, approached, either uh, from the technological angle or the legal angle. Uh, mm-hmm. How is it done and should it be done? Okay. Um, and we were the only people there from the humanities. It always kind of strikes us the things that drop out when the humanities don't have a role, not just things like narrative, uh, which David was talking about. But history, um, you know, the the historicize like there's no historicization of what surveillance is, where it comes from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and something that we, we very often notice is when there's no voice for the humanities, what sometimes happens, and, and especially when there's kind of techno deterministic arguments going on, that surveillance becomes this one big gray thing, this this kind of umbrella term that somehow like everything, every form of surveillance is kind of the same problem, the same issue with the mm-hmm. same motives. Well, when you look at surveillance as if it's this one monolithic singular thing, and you're not thinking of, of it as a very complex knot of ideas with kind of, you know, different histories and different kind of narrative directions and motivations, you, you start to assume that interpreting things is easy um you yeah, get right. you get you get one big pack of data in and all the quote unquote surveillance people uh just look at it and determine what they want to determine but what's actually happening is, of course is you have many different narratives many different types of data many different groups of interpreters uh some of whom are in competition with other groups and mm-hmm. and the idea that the data that you're producing when you're shopping at the supermarket and the data that you're producing when you go through a passport control booth and the data that you're producing when a random CCTV camera captures you running uh, a red light yeah going through a red light are all instantly interconnected and being watched and interpreted by the same person in some kind of real time. 
uh, <laughs> is is just it's it's crazy. Uh, and so that we do think that this that idea of the humanities complicates the whole idea of what what interpreting surveillance data means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so in that way, you're able to question the assumed interpretive competence of the surveiller writ large. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So then you begin the book by saying in order to enter the surveillance studies or, or, or surveillance theory discussion, let's add that history that's missing. And you go back to uh, the end of the Middle Ages, uh, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and you dig into what you call allegory as mode. Can you lead us into what's going on, what you're doing with allegory, not just as a genre of literature, but as a state of mind or as a mode, and how that connects up to surveillance? We can try. Um, uh, <laughs> you so, do it so well in the book. I, I'm confident you can do it again now. Yeah, this is the problem, right? We're paper people. So, yeah, um, we define surveillance fairly early in the book as the monitoring of human behavior with the motive of anticipating or influencing future events. Um, And one argument that we make is that surveillance as we now think of it really comes into place at the end of the 17th century, uh, beginning of the 18th century, because something about the relationship between social role and inner character was newly problematic. We believe this, but we also decided we had to account for why this situation had not arisen earlier. And this Mm -hmm. led us to a whole chapter, actually, on the Renaissance. Now, allegory is a very complex problem. Uh, When most people think of allegory, they think of certain works of literature, like Mm -hmm. Animal Farm. That's like a classic allegory that that hopefully most of your listeners are very familiar with. Um, And basically, the point of allegory is um, there's a relationship between an underlying meaning and representation of that meaning. So Animal Farm, if you read it uh, simplistically, is a story about an extremely messed up barnyard. But of course, no one reads it. <laughs> it's about the Russian Revolution. And if you don't get that Napoleon the pig is Stalin and that Snowball the pig is Trotsky, then it's just, you know, it's just a bucolic tragedy, I guess. Um, uh, so allegory is a very specific way of articulating how social role and inner selves are related. And the argument mm-hmm. that we make is that up until about the time of Shakespeare, um, the overwhelming ideology was that you could read a person's inner essence just by looking at them. Uh, now, this is never really, really true. But what was striking is the way that this ideology clung, like it hung on for centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the course of maybe 400 years from the late medieval period until until the high Renaissance, uh, allegory was this dominating mode, um, which tried to unify, which tried to view social role and inner character as, as, as one thing, unified, and thus not problematic mm-hmm. from, a, from a surveillance point of view, tried to view them as one thing. And it was visible not merely in the literature, uh, a lot of allegories got written, but also um, the state tried to treat its citizens allegorically. Um, one of the large points we make is if you actually believe that you can just tell what a person is like by looking at them, then surveillance really isn't necessary. It was only when there was a kind of break where this 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 idea, which had real tenacity, was shattered, that surveillance became necessary as a, as a real tool. Just kind of a beginning. Do you want to pick up on that, Aaron? Or sure. Just... I, I, and I would say just where we start to see 
the break, one of the key texts for us is uh, Othello with Shakespeare. And Shakespeare, you know, he's not just a great author. He's a smart guy. Uh, and he clearly picks up on a kind of social shift going on, a new type of man. I mean, all the kind of the Renaissance new man type stuff. I mean, he really looks into that and thinks about the significance of it. And Iago is just this, in, in a way, earth shattering character because mm. Iago is essentially a totally autonomous and kind of inscrutable character who operates in an allegorical world. And people people look at him and interpret him as if he as if he were essentially allegorically readable, as if as if his inner identity was there to be read on the surface. And they look at him and they just think, noble Iago, honest Iago, loyal Iago. And Iago knows very well that they're doing this. And so he he plays along uh, and he plays along with this way of seeing people. But, you know, in his various uh, kind of asides to the audience, he's saying, well, actually, I I'm completely my own man. I'm thinking of things that, you know, nobody around me has any idea of. He has this this in a way terrifying moment where he just says, I am not what I am. It's this moment where Shakespeare is kind of pointing to the fact that when you have people like Iago walking around, in other words, something like real people, uh, autonomous individuals, the whole allegorical faith in being able to read people breaks apart. And you've got people wandering around who are going to be able to exploit that. Now, I'll just very quickly say, I won't go on and on, but uh, when we say that the allegorical mode declines and is replaced by another uh, kind of subsequent mode. We don't mean that allegory allegory dies and becomes totally extinct. It's it's always there. It just ceases to become the dominant mode that's that has total kind of faith placed in it by, you know, administrators and nobles and things like that. You still get allegorical characters popping up. You still have people reading each other in novels in kind of vaguely allegorical ways. They look at some... Well, yeah, and in, and in fact, alleg- one of the sort of largest claims we make in the book is that not only does allegory never quite go away, but it comes roaring back in the 20th century. That's right. Um, all yeah. these different ways. Because behind allegory is the idea of... It's an idea of power. Um, that that statement, you are what you seem, or you know, you, Stalin, or Napoleon the pig... Behind that, there's an assertion of, of someone saying that. There's, there's an assertion of force. And up until, call it 1600, the justification for that act of identification was, was God, was something divine. Well, that goes away. But the basic power gesture, the desire to, to, to make that gesture, it never goes away. And, and it comes back in other forms later on, which is, I mean, we're jumping ahead. But yeah, allegory mm-hmm. remains a major topic in the book. One of the pieces of your historical argument uh, when you're setting out the changes in allegorical thinking or as it kind of uh, loses prominence during during the Renaissance and early modern period that I really liked was the the short – it's not quite an aside because it's a piece of the <laughs> argument, yeah. but on uh, on naming customs. Yes. <laughs> One of the arguments we make about allegory that, that, that it goes by very quickly, but it actually – it's a fairly significant part of the argument is that the mm-hmm. nature of allegory does change between the Middle Ages and the late Renaissance, precisely because it's such a tenuous and tendentious mode. Um, I mean, the, the earliest allegories um, are really a kind of primitive psychology. 
Uh, I mean, you look at you look at early medieval allegories, and there are characters like Faith and Will. And <laughs> right, you know, if you ask what does this character named Faith mean, you're an idiot. Faith means faith, right? Now, the thing that defines faith is something outstanding outside of the allegory, like like a religious system, right? Mm -hmm. But towards the beginning of the period, it's it's an extremely unitary mode, and then as it comes apart. Um, it becomes more complex to the point where by the end of the Renaissance, it, it, it's it's really kind of very overgrown and lush and and hard to read. But as society begins to get more complex, there's this impetus to sort of freeze people within their roles in life. And so one thing that happens during the 16th century is people begin to get surnames. <laughs> in the early Middle Ages, if identity... Identity wasn't really problematic. Maybe a single profession in a village stayed in a family forever. And so mm -hmm. you have, you know, John the Butcher, whose, whose son James then becomes James the Butcher. But they're just John and James. Well, by the 16th century, as, as the social body is becoming more complex, you see all these attempts by the state to sort of freeze people, so make them identifiable. And one of, the, one of the symptoms of this is the introduction of surnames. Suddenly, it's not James the Butcher; it's James Butcher, and that is an allegorical gesture. You know, like, what are you? You're this is what you are. See, it's your name; it's in the records, and now we can keep track of you and your entire butcher family, and and make sure that we know who you are. It, it's just that that's one little symptom of 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 how the state attempted to make its citizens readable, um, mm -hmm. as allegory was kind of getting problematic. Yeah, and again, authors play with this idea so that. I think of like, you know, restoration comedy or something like that. You'll have people with vaguely realistic names that that don't seem particularly allegorical commingling with people with old style allegorical surnames. You know, I mean, if you've read restoration comedy, they're basically all just sex comedies. And the, the characters have, you know, these names like Lord Prickwell and Lady Willing and things like this. And you just you don't have to do any great thinking about what these people are and what they're like and what their behavior is going to be. Yeah. Or or like Tom Jones, where the main character is named Tom Jones, but right. his exactly. but Squire Allworthy. <laughs> exactly. You know, they're, and, and they're that, somehow that weirdly continues. coexisting in the same world. Yeah, yeah, it continues for a long time. So you get it in Dickens where you've got people with more or less realistic names that don't give anything away about their characters. And then you've got them coexisting with people with names like Sloppy and 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 Sloppy is Sloppy. I mean, you just you don't <laughs> there's not a lot of surveillance needed for this guy. Like he is what he is and he yeah. is what his name is. So, yeah, that 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 move to kind of pin people down with names um, and then how real autonomous individuals kind of start to wriggle out from under that net um, is something that. Yeah, authors play with. Sometimes they need a kind of quick, readable, secondary character, and those people get allegorical surnames in the way that they were originally intended to work. But they 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 live in the same world as people with names that don't give anything away about them. Yeah, so as your argument moves forward into that kind of the post-allegorical or the early modern into modern period, yeah. you... You continue to address the way that, that these problems and these concepts were handled in literature, but you also really delve into uh, some of the thinkers who shaped ideas in other forms of writing. You especially spend a lot of time with Locke yeah. and with Bentham. Yeah. Can you talk about how you pick up on Locke's ideas and see them carried forward? And um, and the, the other thing that we missed in the introduction that you do is yeah. say we're going to reread Bentham in his time rather than through 
Foucault, for instance. Right. Let's jump to to Locke and Bentham and some of the guys who were doing some of the philosophical work that's that's really trying to cope and keep up with what's going on when you lose the stable God who establishes an allegorical order for life. Yeah, so Locke gets going in a period of incredible uh, social chaos, right? The the English civil wars have just happened. um, And he's writing in this moment where um, there's a persistent fear of pure anarchy. It's always a possibility. But he's also determined not to go back to the absolutism of the late Stuarts. And it's really that moment where it's not just Locke, but other people start to articulate something that's neither anarchy nor despotism. Mm-hmm. And his one of his insights, I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying terribly here, is that it's perhaps possible to create a society in, on entirely secular terms in which agreements are forged between real or potential rivals, tactical agreements, uh, mm-hmm. contracts. Contractarianism is obviously, it's in the water at this time. And the motive underlying it is the attempt to form a society that's not based on something divine, but also has the, the ability to hold together. Um, mm-hmm. And he's one of many people doing this. We just think that he's, in some ways, the most influential for, for a whole bunch of reasons. But where we start with him is really at the very beginning of his career, where a lot of what we think of as modern liberalism hasn't even slipped into place yet. His main motive as a political thinker is terror. Uh, terror that society will either fall apart or revert into a kind of despotism. And his first major statement that of what becomes his liberalism is this thing called um, a letter on toleration, in which toleration really becomes the substratum for for everything that follows. He says, "Look, we, we probably we probably want to kill each other, but at some point we're gonna have to do, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna have to agree to get along, even though we can't really abide each other." That seems to be the basis of almost everything that follows. And then he spends the rest of his career articulating a theory of rights, certain ideas about liberties, certain ideas about how society can be practically structured. But at the very root, um, there's a block which we find very appealing in him. It's not in, it's not in all of these contractarians. There's just a basic conviction that people are inherently valuable, people sh- should be autonomous, and that between autonomous people, individuals, it's possible to strike bargains and deals and build a society out of that. What's frustrating about Locke is that he never actually really explains how any of that's going to be possible. And so it takes the next two centuries and counting, three centuries and counting, to make his model work. But Mm -hmm. we see him as one of the people who's really uh, replacing the old idea of allegory with something more contractual. Right. Well, and I can say a few things about Bentham. He's one of these figures. It's it's interesting, actually, the relationship between... Uh, Locke and Bentham. Locke, we we saw somebody who people hadn't paid enough attention to him in terms of his relevance to surveillance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bentham, nobody could ever say that people haven't paid enough attention. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it is in a way so utterly strange that that Bentham has ended up this kind of unavoidable figure in in modern philosophical discourse. But the cliched kind of ubiquitous understanding of Bentham, uh, largely gotten via Foucault, is uh, that he is this kind of monstrous figure of authoritarianism, and his panopticon prison, if if um, people listening are familiar with it, based well, should, this... Actually, Carl, do you think we should just take a minute and describe the panopticon? 
Yeah, let's let's give it 30 seconds. Yeah. The 30 second version, it's a circular building with a tower in the middle, in the middle of a central courtyard, ringed by cells. And within the tower, there's a guard who's behind Venetian blinds. And so the basic idea is, if you're a prisoner in a cell that's exposed to this tower, you never know whether you're being watched or not. And Bentham reasons that if you don't know whether you're being watched or not, um, you'll behave yourself. Yeah. And and the prison is kind of physically structured to model that kind of behavior. And and so what, what happens is people, uh, based on very selective reading of admittedly, like just voluminous writings by Bentham. I mean, he, <laughs> yeah. he's got vast amounts uh, about yeah. this stuff. And, and we really just engage with like people typically engage with tiny little fragments of it. But this has become an idea of, ah, Bentham wanted a prison in which a kind of central authority can gaze upon an abject, isolated individual. And eventually the person uh, internalizes that gaze until it essentially breaks the person's mind and he becomes a kind of controlled zombie and this specter of surveillance turns them into a, a, a kind of subservient drone. And also that this idea can then be expanded to describe an entire society. Right. And this right. is basically Foucault <clears throat> then says, ah, as, as the panopticon prison works within the prison, so all modern society essentially works in a panoptic way. Well, when you actually start to read a little bit more about Bentham and read his letters and read some more of the um, writings and, you know, some of the things that are still unpublished and in archives and things like that, you know, many of these cliches are just are just provably false. I mean, first of all, he himself says, listen, I have no interest in creating a society where there's just some person in isolation with somebody staring at them all the time because that just drives people crazy and that's no good. Uh, in fact, what you want is people <clears throat> have interaction with other people. Um, he has actually this remarkable moment where he says, actually, he, he sometimes he kind of writes as if he's kind of working it out as he's writing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And he says, which you know, is probably the case, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. he says, you know, what would be great is if everybody wore masks, because then you could kind of behave in kind of appropriate ways and and you wouldn't have to be kind of distracted by like who you're interacting with and this kind of thing. So so the idea of let's just shove people into an isolated cell and break their minds is a long way away from where he is. He's very interested in sympathetic readings of people. He's very interested in encouraging people basically through, um, you know, the panoptic prison to learn how important it is to behave in kind of socially appropriate ways, which he basically mm -hmm. says, I mean, some, some prisoners just don't understand this. Um, and we're, you know, we're, he really thinks of the panopticon as a way to kind of improve upon barbaric prison conditions. Mm -hmm. So we really did kind of try to go back to Bentham and try to kind of uh, re-explain what, Bentham was all about and where yeah. his priorities were. Yeah, and to situate it, if the current, if the common view of Bentham is to read him back through these highly dystopian late 20th century readings of him, uh, what we were saying is, let's look and see how he's the product of his own time. And right. in fact, if you look at the lead up to Bentham in the 18th century, it's all this moral philosophy and it's all this sentimental literature in which sentimentality and uh, the way people change their behavior based on social pressure is the main topic. 
And mm-hmm. all we basically do is we go back and say, look, this is the stuff that Bentham himself was reading. And he's not prophesying totalitarianism. He's interested in how certain kinds of social watching, certain kinds of surveillance, encourage people's natural performativity in certain ways right. to be quite beneficial. One of my favorite parts of the book, actually, is that little aside or where you pull in – I guess it was from a letter of his where he says yeah. that in reading Clarissa yeah. by Richardson, he was bathed in tears for hours. Yeah. 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 Which, which I think does situate him really nicely in that milieu that you're talking about where what he's interested in is the way that people respond to social pressures but not in a kind of a, um, abstracted and domineering – um, from a domineering position, like you, like you're saying. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, the yeah. common view of Bentham is that he was a kind of emotionless robot, and so just that very <laughs> right. image. I mean, as a person, that that's he's often thought of as you know, Mister Rationality with no with no soul. Yeah. That's kind of how it's how he's come down to us, and so the very image of of Bentham bawling uncontrollably is just yeah. wonderful. Yeah, no, especially yeah. you know that idea of oh Bentham, he wanted to eliminate emotion and sentimentality. You know, he he wanted to eviscerate that stuff. So yeah, the idea of him weeping over Clarissa uh, kind of gives a lie to it. Yeah, I mean, we talk about in in this in the second chapter about how the 18th century thought about the formation of character, and like let's say that after Locke, it became clear in the abstract how a secular society might work um, mm-hmm. without without God sort of verifying it in, in the background. But basically, people needed to be, they needed to be autonomous, and they also needed to be sort of generated out of society rather than from God. Uh, and mm-hmm. one of the first solutions to get articulated how this could happen was, the, was in the 18th century, where the idea of social construction, social performance were the, were the main idea. Like, how does a person mm-hmm. become a person? And the 18th century answer on the whole was, you become a person through your interaction with other people. Uh, the idea that you could get born, get stuck in a closet for 25 years, and then somehow emerge as a fully formed human being was was ludicrous. Uh, over the course of the 18th century, along various different vectors, you see all these people thinking, "Okay, we're just gonna we're we're gonna assume that the way people become fully formed human beings is through social interaction." How's that happened? And so you have uh, philosophers like David Hume and Adam Smith articulating these these social constructionist psychologies where, where, where it's like, well, you, you look at other people and then you see their reactions to you and then you internalize what it must be to see yourself from their point of view and they, you become more of a person. And meanwhile, all these novelists like Richardson are doing the same thing or something very similar in, in, in literatures so that by the time you get to Bentham, there's this very rich conversation about how interactions of various different kinds shape the personality in different ways. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about – this is a, another one of my favorite pieces, the history of the post office and <laughs> the way that you see changes not just in published literature but in personal letters yep. based on surveillance. One very interesting thing about the post office in the 17th and 18th centuries uh, and just mail delivery and things like that, uh, again, there's, there is this kind of cliche of surveillance as a totally abject – naive, ignorant, helpless subject, and then the the kind of all-powerful and irresistible mechanism of the the watchers, whoever they are. The the post office is is great and kind of hilarious too, because almost immediately, once delivery starts to be centralized and regulated, high-profile people 
are having their letters opened and read um, by government agents. And there's really nothing subtle about it. I mean, certain le- like letters go missing, like letters come in with, you know, opened envelopes and all these, these <laughs> yeah. things. What you see, though, is because there is immediately an awareness of being under watch, under surveillance, people not only alter the way in which they write, uh, you've got all the kind of evasions of surveillance. That's everything from invisible ink to code and all that that kind of stuff. But more interestingly, people just alter the way they write. They will adopt these kind of very neutral, inscrutable, formal letter writing styles. They will mm-hmm. adopt um, different styles when they're writing about different things, ways that they write to kind of throw people off the scent or ways to kind of write where they think, well, this just sounds boring and they probably won't read this thing. But you, you also, all, all through this period, um, you have numerous uh, letter writers. Swift is hilarious with this kind of stuff, um, where they'll be writing about something and they'll say, you know, my dear Alexander, greetings to you. And greetings, too, to our friends at the post office who are <laughs> yeah. right now. Well, the person, the person that we quote, I'm, I'm going to just throw this in. The person that we quote is a guy named uh, um, William King, where he says, yeah. to the gentleman of the post office who intercepted my last letter, yeah, addressed that's right. Mr. Mrs. Whiteway at her house at Abbey Street, together yeah. with a letter enclosed and addressed to the Dean of St. Patrick's. That's Jonathan yeah. Swift. Yeah. Sir. When yes. you have sufficiently perused this letter, I beg you the favor to send it to the lady to whom it's directed. Yeah. Very jaundiced about this. Sorry, go on, Aaron. Yeah, absolutely, and and uh, you know, and beyond that, you get a, an interesting side effect, which is because people are writing in certain styles in in letters, you also have this idea of well, people kind of want to read the letters and see the real person, and that's not just the government. It's people like fans of these people's writing and Pope and Swift when they exchange letters not only have this kind of ongoing thing about how their letters are surely being read by the government, but they're forever teasing each other, especially Swift to Pope, uh, that Pope is really not writing a, any kind of personal letter to him. He's writing a letter that he knows will one day be published in some kind of scholarly mm-hmm. edition by somebody. And he's not revealing anything of himself in it. He's writing something that like he's presenting a kind of polished public face and saying kind of wise and witty things so so the whole system of postal surveillance the original idea is where do people really reveal themselves they're surely not doing it just kind of wandering around we can't look at people and understand (laughs) who they are ah yes they reveal their true selves in their letters let's let's read these letters and almost immediately that that system you know completely falls to pieces i mean not that they ever not that they don't ever find anything interesting in letters and, and that kind of thing, but but it's a very fraught system, and it's one where people are very conscious of what's happening. Um, so Yeah, yeah the, the only thing I would add, add to that is that, and this, this has a direct impact on, on literature and especially the yeah. early novel. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things that the novel does, one, one reason why the novel um, arises at the moment that it does uh, around the turn of the 18th century is that it, it promises something revealing about, about, about other people, um, like getting to the truth of other people. And so one of the first forms to really take off in the early novel is um, the epistolary novel. Samuel Richardson's major novels, Pamela and Clarissa, consist of exchanges of letters. That's mainly what they are. And they also have this similar promise where it's like, yeah, you know where the soul is revealed? It's, it's, in, it's in personal letters. 
And uh, this works for about 100 pages of Pamela before he realizes, he, before Richardson realizes he's in trouble. Because rather than being like, a, at, at, rather than letters showing someone at, at his or her most exposed, there are always opportunities for various kinds of performance. And mm-hmm. almost, almost immediately, this genre that tries to be a kind of transparent window into the soul becomes something quite different. It becomes about people, you know, messing around with each other and trying to present themselves in their best light and misleading each other and, and all, the good, all the good stuff that makes novels actually fun to read. And this struggle over what in other places you call interpretive codes, you know, yeah. the struggle between the person who's writing the letter or later who's being captured on camera, what their performance is and what they're doing versus the person who on the other side of it has to interpret it and try to put the pieces together um, also makes up a big piece of the next chapter where you're talking about privacy and especially the way that Wordsworth's ideas and his poetry were picked up by thinkers in law yeah. and and beyond as they're trying to get a sense of what is a person, what is a self, and some of the reaction to constructionism. Can you, can you jump into that uh, discussion and the way you put together the pieces in approaching the issue of privacy and the struggle over interpretive codes uh-huh. um, with communications and performance? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, just to restate one of the major ambitions of the book, we're, we're not interested in writing a kind of typical historicist uh, study in which mm-hmm. – in which we read literature within the codes of history or we read literature as being influenced by history. One of the major claims of the book, a big one, is that the relationship between literature and history is dialectical. And sometimes major things that happen in history happen first in literature, happen through literature. Mm-hmm. Um, and this exa- privacy is, is one of the great examples of this, actually. We think of privacy as kind of um, an eternal right, but actually it doesn't really get articulated until – like formally articulated, legally articulated until the very end of the 19th century. There's this mm-hmm. uh, journal review article in the Harvard Law Review by Louis Brandeis, who goes on and becomes the uh, justice of the Supreme Court, and his partner Samuel Warren called The Right to Privacy, in which they basically say, why is privacy important? And they basically say at the end, it's because uh, everybody has the right to what they call an inviolable personality. It's a very weird claim, but it boils down to the idea that in order to become a full person, you need to be let alone. Um, personhood, rather than being something that's socially generated, is something that actually happens in private. So the question that Aaron and I began with was like, where does this idea come from? Because if you look at the 18th century, no one would agree with that. It was simply taken for granted that personhood is something that develops through interactions with other people. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the next turn of a kind of dialectical wheel, uh, and the people who articulate this new idea of what it means to be a person are on the whole poets. And one in particular, William Wordsworth, the great late 18th, early 19th century British poet, uh, it plays a central role in this. One, what he basically says is, if you grow up entirely in a social situation, uh, you can become a person, but you'll never be a full person because mm. you'll just take on the coloration of everyone around you. Now, if you're a poet, this is a problem uh, because poets, uh, especially by the time of Wordsworth, lay a claim to being distinctive and unique human beings. Mm-hmm. The problem with social construction is it doesn't explain how people can be unique and distinctive. Uh, <laughs> right. Right? Uh, almost for professional reasons, he has to generate a different story about how, about how the soul grows. Um, if the 18th century simply assumed, if you grow up in the countryside and you never, have, never go to the city, you'll never be fully formed, Wordsworth 
changes that 180 degrees. And what he says is, mm-hmm. if you if you grow up in conversation with other people, you'll never become distinctive in any way. Uh, the 18th century answered the question about how the soul could grow without the influence of God, but didn't answer the question about how people could be autonomous and different from each other. And this mm-hmm. is what Wordsworth does. And what he basically says is, you need privacy. You need you need to be let alone. You need to meditate with what's best in nature. And over this time of being let alone, that thing that's within you will grow into something distinctive. And this idea kind of sits for a while, uh, and it gets absorbed into 19th century social theory. A major reader of, of Wordsworth is J.S. Mill. And by the end of the 19th century, these ideas have become so normalized that uh, they find expression as as law. The idea that privacy is not about control of personal property. It's a necessary precondition for becoming a fully developed person. If you ever want a really underrated uh, way to entertain yourself is to watch modern legal scholars yeah, that's right. with Warren and Brandeis's fundamental idea of privacy and why privacy is important that's in this, you know, the right to privacy thing. It's still it still hangs over huge amounts of privacy law. And mm-hmm. but you there are all these legal scholars and lawyers and judges who, you know, it's like, well, why why do we need to protect privacy? And the answer is kind of like, well, because you know, privacy is really good for, you know, your soul. Or I mean it's kind of roughly in this kind of region. And you you know, there's all these scholars who are just like, What what are you talking about? Like, I mean, this is <laughs> this is nuts. Yeah, mystical convictions about the soul don't make for good law. It Absolutely. may, be, it may yep. be profoundly true, but but how do you then create tort protections based on yep. the idea of an inviolable personality? Privacy law is completely unconsciously and accidentally hilarious because you've got a, a whole field that's based on basically poetic conceptions of the individual. But right. um, you know the the other thing that I think we both noticed is when we're teaching, uh, you know, we're in there with all our millennial students, and it's like, hey, is privacy important? Of course, everybody believes privacy is important. Why? And it's very difficult question to answer. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I find my own students at Georgia Tech, who in many ways live very publicly, uh, sooner or later get into these kind of bizarrely uh, kind of Lake District romantic poet <laughs> conceptions of like, well, one needs to be free to wander around a meadow and stare at a dandelion and, and get in touch with yourself. It's like, my God, you you guys have never done anything like this. But that idea, that idea of like, this is privacy, it's important because you get in touch with yourself. I, I, actually, not to go on too long with this, but because the new sequel to Train Spotting is coming up, I always think of mm-hmm. the scene in the original Train Spotting where they decide to get in touch themselves and go and wander around the beautiful Scottish countryside and they get dropped off by a train in the middle of some, you know, random moor. And there's these kind of four drug addicts with, you know, plastic bags full of beer. And they're just standing and looking at the countryside and they, they just have this like, why are we here? Like, what, what are we supposed to do? Why Why do we want to be by ourselves wandering around? And you have this idea of this one character has taken in this idea of privacy. It's about being by yourself. It's about wandering around in nature and allowing your inviolate personality to, to be nurtured and developed. And when they get out there, they really have no idea what that means or how it works. And I love that in the book, you when you're talking about that idea getting passed along up 
to Louis Brandeis. You talk about Thoreau and how he was a how he was a piece of that, even in Boston culture 30, 40 years before Brandeis. But the way that the ideas moved through various social circles and to the point where it went from poetry to influencing uh, theology and law, I thought was um, a really potent piece of your argument. It's important to us to not see literature as simply reactive. Sometimes mm-hmm. literature is simply the place where the thinking happens first. And then it mm-hmm. takes a while to diffuse in the other direction. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a long history from um, Wordsworth talking about the inviolable soul, which is something he says, to Brandeis writing inviolate personality. But the line is, line is direct. So a couple of other big pieces of your argument that you bring in in this chapter about privacy are the rise of the police force as we would recognize it today. And then the way that ideas about privacy um, mapped unevenly across different social classes. One thing that you start to get during the 19th century is the kind of the the regularization of the police, um, the police into an actual kind of formal institution. You know, one one thing that we talk about a little bit in, in the book is there's there's very interesting tension in terms of 19th century ideas of the police. Um, mm-hmm. On the one hand, you you very quickly get the idea of police detectives, police sergeants have an almost miraculous ability to kind of stare through people and see kind of who they are and 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 their their deep truth. This becomes a kind of a cliche in literature. Dickens uses it. Often the kind of the further down the class scale you go, like they could just kind of look at a certain person and say, this person is just inherently criminal. Uh, and it starts to get into all these other fields of, you know, pseudoscientific regularization of this kind of stuff where it's, well, the police have this kind of phrenological knowledge where they can tell by the shape of a skull whether somebody's good or bad. But they, 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 you have this idea of like the Victorian cop walking a beat knows everybody in the neighborhood, sees the truth, etc., uh, etc. Et On the other hand, yeah. you, you just as quickly get the idea of the police. They couldn't catch a cold. What do these guys know? And, and it gives rise to things like Sherlock Holmes and detective fiction and things like this, where, mm-hmm. where the police are essentially a foil. They're basically a kind of, you know, a, a, a metonym for, for blindness and stupidity. They can never see what's happening. So you, you have these two ideas of what the police are that are kind of starting to grow right at that same time. Hmm. Yeah, to, I mean, to pick up on on the class aspect of it, um, to put this in the in the largest picture, let's say that Locke laid out the basic idea of how a liberal society could work. People had to be autonomous individuals, and their selfhood had to be sort of self derived. By by Wordsworth, the pieces are all are, are all there. There's finally he's finally explained how without the influence of God individuals grow up to be distinctive people. But this is a major societal problem. Um, in the 18th century, you got all these guys going to the countryside or going into the slums of London. And because of their social constructionist views of like how people get developed, they're able to dismiss the vast majority of mankind as kind of mm. not quite human. <laughs> well, once right. you have this ideology that really every single person is a distinct individual, then the masses become a problem. You know, And there are these great moments in Wordsworth. He's one of the first people to freak out over this, but it totally carries over into Dickens. Or he'll just go for a walk in London and say, uh, the face of everyone who passes by me is a mystery. Who are these people? They, they, they can't be dismissed any longer. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, one thing, one, one 
through line of, of liberal theory is, you know, this is why you need education, because if the vast majority, if 85% of the population can't simply dismiss, be dismissed as an unrecognizable single bolus, then people need to be educated to become fully civilized citizens. But that's a long process. And so then mm-hmm. what do you do about what do you do about the vast majority of mankind who aren't members of the elite, who aren't wealthy, but who can't simply be dismissed as, as not worthy of attention? Um, mm-hmm. The police itself rises partly because of this, out of this kind of social panic. Like, how, how are you going to watch all, all, of these, all of these individuals who can no longer be simply ignored? And what you get by the, end of the end, by the end of the 19th century is a very strided view of privacy. For people at the top of the social scale, privacy is a self-evident good. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that makes you who you are. Uh, it's the thing that makes you a, a fully formed, distinct individual. But that idea of privacy can't simply be extended to everyone because not everyone has been as, as privileged to have this kind of experience in life, but they also have to be watched. So as you go down the social scale, privacy benefits become extremely uneven as they're, as they're, mm-hmm. they're distributed. And so rhetorically, all these well-meaning people like John Stuart Mill or L.T. Hobhouse or uh, social thinkers tie themselves in knots where they'll say privacy is an important thing for everyone. But because not everyone is fully exposed to that benefit, uh, actually, there are large numbers of the populace that need to be watched very carefully. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, and, you know, to to kind of go back to the idea of the police being a a mechanism by which especially the underclasses can be watched. By the way, this is only the police are only one part of a kind of gigantic society wide effort to try to be able Mm -hmm. to read, you know, uh, the people, especially lower down the society. You know, it includes things like, you know, censuses. It includes uh, home addresses, identification cards uh, and includes things like, you know, we talk a little bit about 19th century poverty maps where. Yeah. Okay, there's still only so many police and there's a lot of poor people out there. So how do you know where they are and what they're like? And you've what got these kind of, you've got these yeah, what they're doing, you've got these shaded in maps of London where each block is colored a different color and it's like, well, if the block is red, then it's well-to-do, socially well-behaved people. And if it's black, it's vicious, semi-criminal class. And they they go in, they look at these people, and then they come up with this kind of shading for, okay, this type, mm-hmm. this block is like this. And it's pure but, fantasy. Pure way. fantasy. And this this is actually where we go, and this is, in a way, a transition to the kind of return of allegory stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's this deep desire to have this faith that, like, okay, we need to know what all these people are doing. Let's put police out there, and police have the magic ability to look to kind of sift through I mean, they w- walk through these kind of working houses or kind of sleeping quarters where there's literally piles of poor people. And they, they, they almost literally sift through them, like kind of lifting people off each other. And then that, you know, they get to the bottom of a pile of poor people and they're like, ah, this one is a criminal. I can tell by the cut of his jib. It, it becomes obvious to everybody that, yeah, this is a comforting fancy, but it's a fantasy. Mm-hmm. And, and, Many of these ways of reading people are are fantasies and, you know, the desire for them to exist uh, just fuels an increasing and sometimes kind of desperate attempt to return to something closer to allegorical understanding of people. Okay, 
the policemen aren't going to be really able to do it this way. How are we going to tell what are these people are, you know, like and what they're up to and what they're going to do? Well, maybe we can categorize them. Maybe we can type them. Maybe we can come up with new systems where we reduce people to, you know, this person is Mr. Working Class. This person is Mr. Criminal. Mm-hmm. And, and you start to have this this big shift back to allegorical ways of understanding. Well, and also just I would add to that on the literary side of things, um, this is really where the detective novel as a genre kind of bursts out of the realistic mainstream. As long as the police are being described in some realistic ways, they can't actually be magical, magical interpreters of, of the real world and other people. Um, as, as fantastic as Victorian descriptions of the police are, they're still, they're still grounded in some vaguely plausible reality. Um, you know, phrenology explains how you can look at a, at a criminal and immediately see how, why from the shape of his head, he's a bad person. But even that's not enough. And one thing that finally does happen um, in the middle of the 19th century is the creation of this patently magical figure who's able just to interpret things that no one else can because, mm-hmm. you know, he has superpowers, essentially. Yeah. And that's Dupin in, in Edgar Allan Poe and then preeminently Sherlock Holmes. Um, yeah. No such person ever existed or ever will, but it's a tremendous comfort in believing in that kind of person because it solves a lot of problems of basic realism. And Mm -hmm. worth noting that both Dupin and Sherlock Holmes, in their kind of introductory stories, do mind-reading tricks, basically where they're able to kind of actually tell people, you were just thinking about this, you were thinking about this, and then that, and this, and then that. And, And so their abilities actually go inside the brain itself. I mean, they can see what you're thinking, you know. In the, in the final five minutes, uh, what would you like to handle um, from the rest of the book? Uh, do you want to talk about taxonomy of contemporary surveillance? Do you want to talk uh, surveillance reading? Um, or do you want to deal with, you know, just kind of another step historically into um, – progressivism versus paranoia in fiction. What do you guys think? Carl, what are you most interested in talking about? It's your five minutes as well as ours. <laughs> I personally love the, the comparison between Orwell and Tolkien, <laughs> how they handle surveillance in different ways. But I'd also be interested in leaping over that kind of to the end and to the way that you finish the book, talking about surveillance reading and what you kind of offer to your readers as a takeaway. Okay. Sure, why not? David, why don't you start talking a little about surveillance reading? The literary and social argument does move through. We, we've kind of brought things in our discussion up till about 18, 1850. <laughs> right, and, and, right. And, and the argument goes forward into the present. But the, the final phase of the book is an attempt to talk about how surveillance works today. Um, mm-hmm. uh, that I mean, our understanding of why, our, our literary understanding of, of how surveillance works hopefully has some payoff in, in how the situation of surveillance in the contemporary world is understood. That's one of the right. things I want to get out of the book. And so, and so at the end of the book, we do a whole bunch of things, which I don't know if there's time to describe, but I'll, I'll, just, I'll just say what they are. Sure. We produce a, a kind of model for analyzing surveillance in different conditions. Uh, mm-hmm. We talk about how in any surveillance situation, there's always going to be a competition between degree of pressure um, uh, exercised on by the by the system on the person and that person's degree of voluntariness Um, Mm -hmm. we talk about things in the present day that are worrisome but things that aren't we try to distinguish between different kinds of surveillance like one big idea which we which we really haven't talked about yet is a very 
basic distinction between surveillance as a kind of coercion and surveillance as mm-hmm. a kind of empathy. Um, yes. Uh, just just to briefly say that there are really two ki- there are really two kinds of surveillance that that don't overlap at all. You either watch people in the hopes of understanding them better and anticipating what they're going to do, or you watch them in the hopes that if they know you're watching them, they'll behave in certain ways. Um, mm-hmm. It's maddening how people talk about these two different modes of surveillance as if they were one thing, where in fact there's no overlap whatsoever. Either a person knows or doesn't know whether he's being watched. And so we talk about the way these different kinds of surveillance are operating in the current in the current conversation. And we try to first offer a kind of taxonomy of the different kinds of surveillance as they oper- as they exist now, and to offer some practical advice about how about how to read. Um, uh, both mm-hmm. how to read books and how to read other people. Um, but I mean, there's not enough time to really get into the weeds, but that's what we do spend the last 60 pages going through things that are hopefully relevant to the present moment. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, again, to return to those ideas of interpretation, 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 right? There's the mechanical problems of surveillance, the legal problems of surveillance, but it's the interpretive problems of surveillance that that finally we're really most interested in. And that, and that right. get the that get the least attention often. Uh, I mean, you you have uh, the cliche uh, for intelligence officers is you're drinking out of a fire hose, right? Like y- you've just got a tidal wave of information coming at you. How do you sift through it? How do you turn things into a narrative? Uh, how do you recognize your own biases in putting a narrative together? How do you start to attribute meaning and significance to different details? Um, how do you sort these things out? Um, how do you how do you come to grips with the idea that certain details uh, are only going to reveal their true significance later on? You will not be able to identify what the true significance of a particular detail is in real time. It'll only become clear later. Now, these are all not that we want to sound like you know. The future of the English major is preparing people to become CIA agents. Or stuff. <laughs> but, but these are questions, actually, which the humanities and, and we think literary studies in particular mm-hmm. are singularly relevant uh, to to answering some of these questions, these questions about taking meaning out of out of details, uh, interpreting, assembling narratives, recognizing your own bias as a as an interpreter uh, and developing developing empathy for People. Absolutely. And, and, and also in thinking in terms to go back to what David was saying about, you know, separating different types of surveillance, uh, understanding things like genres, understanding mm-hmm. things like modes. That is, you don't read something in one genre the same way you read a work from another genre. And, and you shouldn't really be looking at data produced by one type of surveillance with certain types of tools and motives in the same way that you would read other types of uh, data produced by other types of surveillance tools with different types of motives and it's about you know separating those different narrative production systems and things like that so i think that's kind of where we end up in the book it's a kind of mm-hmm. i hope not too desperate plea <laughs> to, to <laughs> for the for the relevance of the humanities and why why those yeah. skills continue to be important uh, and and you you don't you don't want to lose those skills uh, in in a society like ours right 
and and maybe it's just my background, but I find it more a persuasive case than a desperate plea. Thank you for that. I hope that what we have offered listeners now is tantalizing enough for them to go out and pick up the book, really. Oh, yeah. Chapter four is by far the best. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but uh, in, in the last couple of minutes, maybe could you tell us a little bit about uh, what you're working on now and uh, what we might see from you in the future? Sure. We're continuing really to work on, on, on this material, but not so much a continuation of what we've done as things that we felt needed um, further elaboration. And so I'll just identify mm-hmm. two large areas, and then Aaron may, may want to elaborate further on those. We've become particularly interested in the way surveillance operates within the contemporary classroom in ways that haven't possibly been appreciated. Surveillance regimes have kind of taken over the classroom space, especially on the K to 12 level, but also in our own in our own lives. And the long term effects of that are not very well understood. And so it seems mm-hmm. like there's a lot for us mm-hmm. to talk about there. It may not be something of a book length, but we've already published small articles uh, on that, and would like to do more. Um, we're also uh, we're also interested in working further on on liberalism. The, the, the book mm. develops uh, certain ideas about what liberalism is. Uh, they're not ideas that everyone shares, but we have certain views of what liberalism is. And also certain ideas about how um, liberalism relates to um, how one reads works of literature. Um, and mm-hmm. we'd like to do more with that. We'd like to it, – it's, it's about 65, 70 years at this point since Lionel Trilling wrote The Liberal Imagination – which was the last real attempt to say, okay, how, how does one go about being a humanist scholar if one believes in liberalism? Um, right. And we feel it's kind of time for an update. <laughs> and so if we write another book uh, together, it may very well be along those lines, although that's still coming together, I'd say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll, I'll just very quickly say, first of all, if you hear odd noises, my extraordinarily active four-year-old has finally tracked me down to where I've been cowering in uh, <laughs> hiding. Uh, talk about living under surveillance. I, I would just also add that we also anticipate we will remain engaged with uh, kind of larger questions about the nature of surveillance in America sure. and in modern society, not least because, you know, the 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 incoming Trump administration has set off a, a just a frenzy of speculation about surveillance, privacy, uh, it's, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes very smart. Uh, sometimes like the recent um, kind of spate. <laughs> yes. Spate of misapplications of Orwell to, um, you know, uh, the Trump administration, uh, sometimes maybe not, not quite so finely, uh, tuned. Uh, and, and I do think that there, that debate, uh, will just rage for the next, uh, four or eight years or however many. And so I, I think there will be a need for, um, us to kind of keep an oar in, um, some of the things that we've already mm. talked about. So, yeah, it's not like the topic has become less relevant. Yeah. Uh, since right. we published the book. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope you do uh, keep an oar in, as you say, and I look forward to reading more of your work as you publish. Uh, again, David, Aaron, thanks so much for joining us on New Books in Intellectual History. Thank you Thanks so much for having us. us.